Well, again, good morning to you. If you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Um, if you uh, do not have one with you, there should be one in the seat in front of you, uh, perhaps there at the bottom. And, uh, and if you don't have one at home, uh, we would love for you to, uh, to take uh, one home with you. We think it's really important for all of us to be reading the Bible. God speaks to us through His Word, and so uh, we want you to have a copy. So if you don't have one at home, please take that one with you. But we're in Ephesians chapter 3. If you're uh, new in the Bible, uh, that's, uh, it's in the, um, uh, what's in the back part of it, okay? Um, and, uh, and the large numbers are the chapters, and the small numbers are the verses. And in a minute, I'm going to start reading from verse 14. But um, it is great to see you this morning and to worship with you. Um, I want to uh, share with you once again uh, our mission uh, here at Providence. What are we really seeking to do? And um, what am I doing over this month uh, as it relates to this? But uh, as a church family, we exist right, to bring God glory, to glorify God by introducing all peoples to Jesus Christ and to grow them up to love and to worship Him. That's, that's, our, that's our mission statement. And so uh, where we're at this uh, month, in fact, this, this uh, week is important. There's a prayer night on Thursday night of this week at 7 o'clock right here in this uh, room. And then on Sunday night, um, uh, there'll, there'll be a vote. Uh, and uh, it's honestly, at 9.30, I had a hard time talking about what that boat is. It's really, it's about me, okay? And so it's, it's sort of awkward to, to, uh, to, to be that person, uh, to have your name in there and to make that announcement. But that's what we're doing next Sunday night. And so the elders have asked me to preach through June um, and to preach um, what the Lord has really placed in my heart. And so what I did was anchored around our mission statement because that's not going to change. We, we are uh, committed to this. And so two weeks ago, what we looked at is that God is literally on an unstoppable mission of seeking to build a people, he calls the church, to glorify himself on the earth. And this is what he's about doing. And he's going to accomplish this. He, he, this is going to be victorious. He says, I'm building my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so we're a part of that body. And then last week, what we looked at is that portion of our statement of growing to worship him. And, and, and so we looked there of this remarkable privilege that we have as his people. Um, to respond to his worth and to respond to his work, what he's done for us on the cross when he died and rose again, to respond in a way to where we would offer up our lives and every part of our lives as a living sacrifice to say, God, in, in view of your mercy, in light of your mercy, here's my entire life. I give it to you. And so we looked at this idea called worship. And where we're at today is to grow to love him. To love him. Now, why are we talking specifically about love? Why does love, and in fact grow to love, really um, mark what we talk about here in terms of growing mature in Christ? Why is it not grow in knowledge, or grow in hope, or grow in joy, or grow in peace, or grow in something else? Why is it grow in love? One day there was a man, he walked up to Jesus, and he said, Jesus, of all the commandments in the Bible, which one is the most important? What's the greatest, the first commandment? And Jesus looks at him, and he responds, and this is what he says. He goes, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And what's interesting is Jesus went beyond the confines of the question, and he felt obligated to tell him the second, even though the second was not asked. And he said, let me tell you something else. The second is like it, and that is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
And while we talk about growing to love him in our mission statement, as the words that we choose to use when really describing this concept of growing to maturity in Christ, it's because of this passage, is that God in his love, he says, these are the two pillars upon which I want you to see. The first is that though we tend to attribute growth to measurables such as Bible study and attendance and things like this, where we can check a box if someone's done this or has not done this. The fact is, is there is no growth spiritually that does not manifest itself in a greater love of God. And so it doesn't matter how many Bible studies we've been in. It doesn't matter what place of service that that you have here at Providence is that if we're not growing in love for God, we are not growing spiritually. If there is to be spiritual maturity, it will manifest itself in love. Jesus goes on and he says, all the law and all the prophets is summed up in these two commandments, love God and love others. And so if you're growing, what that means is you're growing to love him. But the second thing is that when Jesus added a second commandment, when he didn't have to, the question is, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, I want to give you the greatest and the second. And when he did this, what we see is that there is no love for God that does not manifest itself in a love for people. And so I don't know if you guys remember, those of you who are older, you will. There's a game that's called Pickup Sticks. This is back in the day. This is, this is, I mean, it's a beautiful thing. You know, now they have games and they have to, I mean, like you have to be able to scale tall mountains with games these days to keep kids interested. Back in the day, they gave us long toothpicks. And, they, and, and, and we bought it. We said, you know what? That's worth the investment right there, some long toothpicks. And what you do with these long toothpicks is you stood them up and you dropped them. And then the point of the game was to pick up the toothpicks, the sticks. And if you moved any sticks while you were seeking to pick up one, you lost your turn. But if you could navigate through and pick up a stick without moving any others, you received the stick and that was a point for you. And what Jesus is saying here is this, is that our love for him and our love for others, our relationship with him and our, our own relationship with others, they're so intertwined, so, so connected that you cannot disrupt one without disrupting another is that they are bound together. And so when we talk this morning about maturity in Christ, you need to understand this. There is no maturity that doesn't manifest itself in love for God. And there is no love for God that doesn't manifest itself in love for one another. And that's why as a church family, we want to be excellent and grow to love him. So if you would, let's bow and let's pray even before we read. Father, we We need your help. And as we read Ephesians, I pray that you would open up our eyes, you would open up our ears, and you open up our heart and help us to see what you want us to to see and hear what you want us to hear. Help us to understand. I pray, God, that you would do a miracle and you would speak through weakness again this morning and that you would bring Jesus glory and you would bring the church great good. So Christ, we need you. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14, says this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, 
may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and to Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers, and pastors to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ that we all, uh, I'm sorry, until we all attained to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that, notice, it builds itself up in love. Now I want you to notice where he ends. He ends where the title begins, growing in love. So this entire passage has at its goal that the community of faith, the local church in Ephesus, would grow to love him and each other. And there's a whole lot in this passage that I'm not going to have time to unpack. But there's two dominating things, two dominating principles, things that are in God's own heart, his own desires that I want you to see this morning. The first is this, is that God desires us to be filled with the fullness of Christ's power and love. Is it is God's desire for you and for me and for all of us to be filled with the fullness of Christ's power and love. You notice verse 14, it begins with the words, for this reason. So we have to go backwards before we can go uh, forwards. We have to understand what's happening before this. And if you remember last week, we looked at the the, uh, book of Romans. There's 16 chapters. And for 11 chapters, Paul is explaining the gospel. And he gets so wrapped up in his own explanation of what Jesus has done, of coming from heaven to earth after we have sinned and broken fellowship with God. And he came from heaven to earth. Instead of crushing us, he came to be crushed. And he lived a righteous life. And then he went to the cross. And he was buried. And he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, he extended to all of us an invitation. And that is that if we would trust him, he would forgive us of our sin. 
that he would give us his righteousness and bring us into his family, into his church, into his people that he's building for all time. And this is what Paul is talking about. And Paul spent 11 chapters in Romans explaining this truth, this gospel, this good news that you and I can be forgiven today. And then at the end of chapter 11, he erupts in worship. He's so excited about what he's writing to other people that he has to worship himself. And then after his statement of worship, he writes another five chapters to be able to tell the church, how should we then live in response to this truth of what Jesus has made available? Well, interestingly, Paul does the exact same thing in the book of Ephesians. He spends the first three chapters describing the gospel talking about what God has made available. He tells us that we were once all dead in our sin, but God has made us alive. He tells us that once we were the objects of God's wrath, but now he has made us the objects of his kindness. Literally, the picture there is God has his bow drawn in the arrow before Jesus. In that, in that bow is his wrath. And that wrath is pointed directly at us. It was pointed at me. And then when Jesus came, though, And he died and he rose again that for everyone that would trust in Jesus, the bow is still drawn. But instead of an arrow of wrath that's lodged within the bow, it's an arrow of kindness and provision and blessing and peace. He's still aiming at us, but what he has aimed is kindness. And so Paul is just enamored by this. And it's interesting, even in our own day and age, that Chapter 2, right before he gets to this picture, he wants to talk about race. Because what's happening in the church in Ephesus is there was was different races. And they weren't getting along. There was Jews and Gentiles. And all depending on your perspective, there was one group that was in and there was one group that was out. And what God does at this place through Paul is he writes and he says, Don't you recognize... That Jesus is the only one powerful enough to reconcile, to redeem, and to connect such great diversity. And so we get to chapter 3, verse 10, and Paul says, look, God has built this church in all of its diversity, in all all of its mess. He's redeemed it in order to show the whole world, in order to show heaven, and in order to show hell, the vast wisdom of God. And it's at this point... When Paul is so enamored again with the amazing gospel of Jesus that he writes, and what he writes is, when I thought about this, I dropped to my knees and I prayed for you. That's what he says. And in this passage, we're actually told that he prays two things for this church in order that one thing would accomplish. And so what are the two things? First of all, he says that he prays that they would be strengthened with power by the Holy Spirit in their inner being. Second, is that with strength, that they would be able to comprehend the vast, immeasurable love of God in Jesus Christ. And that if these two things were fulfilled, and the incredible weather front of God's love was met on this church with the incredible weather front of God's power, then what would happen in the lives of these people is that they would be filled with all the fullness of Jesus Christ. And this is what he has in mind. Now, it's interesting to me that God gives us so many, so many physical expressions in order to point us to spiritual realities. 
And one of them is a tree. Okay, I want to show you this cherry tree. Now, what's happening here, if you can see it closely, is somebody is grafting a branch into this tree just above where that knot is. You actually see that the, that the main tree is cut straight across. It's cut down. And then in between where it's been cut, this person has, has, has grafted, has literally shoved another branch that was separated. Maybe, maybe it had fallen off. And, but, but the fact is, is that branch that was separated would have died. In fact, it will die if it's not grafted. There's no nutrients that, that is feeding this branch. There's, there's, it, it's incapable of bearing fruit. And so what happens, though, is, is that we can now actually, we can cut this tree and we can jam this branch after cutting it so that the inside of the branch is, 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 is actually visible. And then what we can do is we can tie up that tree and God has created it so that this tree, this cherry tree, will absolutely absorb this branch and make it its very own. And not only will it just adopt it and cover it with its own bark, it will actually supply this branch with all of the nutrients so that that branch can actually bear the fruit that the rest of the tree is intending to bear. And this is the picture that God gives to us spiritually. He says that you and I, we're all dead branches, incapable of bearing this fruit of love, incapable of bearing all the fruit that we want to see in our life, which is why you and I, we wake up and we're still amazed that we still struggle with things that we've been struggling with for such a long period of time. And what the picture, he says that you come to Christ and what happens is this, we can abide in him. Literally, we're grafted in. And if we are, are what, what it says here, it says that we will be rooted and grounded in love. Literally, God, by his spirit, will pour his power, will bring it up through and literally bear fruit in our lives. So when we're connected to Christ and supplied by his spirit, the compassion of Christ is evidenced in our countenance with each other. The healing of Christ is evidenced and can be in our brokenness. The humility of Christ is evidenced in our serving. And the generosity of Christ can be evidenced in our giving. The joy of Christ can be evidenced in our singing. And the love of Christ can be evidenced in our caring. The mercy of Christ can be evidenced in our forgiving. And the passion that Jesus has for people who are lost can be evidenced in our going and sharing the gospel with them. The power of Christ can be evidenced in our praying. The purity of Christ can be evidenced in the way that we live. The trustworthiness of Christ can be evidenced in our believing. The sincerity of Christ can be evidenced in the way that we talk to one another and treat one another. And the worth of Christ can be evidenced in our worship. You see, Paul is looking, though he's in a prison cell, he's looking past this prison cell and he's visualizing in faith what can take place in these people if the weather front of God's power met up with the weather front of God's love and met upon this people and they built or, 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 or bore fruit that would glorify the Lord. And so at this point, what it causes him to do is to drop on his knees. He goes, for this reason, I'm getting on my knees. Because he knows the church in Ephesus cannot bear this kind of fruit without Jesus. And either can we. You know, it's amazing though, isn't it? That somehow we keep using measurements for maturity that ignore that which most characterized the life of Jesus. 
If a person is serving or grounded in theology or been involved in 18 years of Bible study or involved in the church, we consider them mature, even though behind the veil he or she may be abrasive or angry or distant or perpetually defiled, critical or legalistic, emotionally disjointed, resistance to accountability, cold in worship and apathetic in sharing their faith. You see, there was a people that Jesus talked a lot about and a lot to when he was on the earth. That by the measurements of the day, they were considered mature. They were considered the, the righteous ones, the godly ones, the one that we want to be like. And Jesus said the problem is that it's all on the outside. They were called Pharisees. And Jesus said to the Pharisees these things. He says, woe to you, Pharisees, for you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and the outside may also be clean. See, the fact is, is we're all broken, aren't we? We don't like to put our brokenness on display because it's embarrassing. But the fact is, is every single person in this room is broken. If you come in here and you're a first-time guest and you come in and you're all these, all these people, they look like they all have it together. And this is a church. And so there's probably like a lot of rules. And what you need to know about us if you're new is you are looking at a bunch of broken people. And I, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm the most fractured. Folks have asked me several times in the last several weeks, you know, is it daunting like to lead the church? And I said, yeah, it's daunting to lead the church. Of course it is. It's heavy. I said, but the reality is there's something heavier than leading this church to me. And that is trying to lead me. My heart keeps wandering. And so every day I have to wrestle it back down to say, all right, God, there it is. I need you to fix it again. We're a broken people. And only God can transform brokenness. You see, we all have ugliness and shame that we want to hide from other people. And the fact is, is if we don't run to Christ for that healing, our desire to fit in will lead us to invest more in the appearance of godliness than godliness itself. So we'll give ourselves to knowledge and we'll give ourselves to legalism. We'll give ourselves to activism because these things are applauded within the church. But every one of these are a path to exhaustion and frustration and loneliness. Only Jesus can transform, which is why we, just like Paul, must give ourselves to pray. That's why we need to get on our knees before the Father, just as Paul did, and pray, God, you are able to do exceedingly more than we can ask or imagine. And we're asking that you would pour out your power and you would pour out your love so that we would experience the fullness of Jesus Christ in our life that would break addictions, that would mend relationships that would reconcile marriages. See, only God can do these things. And so when we want to talk about how we're going to grow in love, you need to realize that what we're talking about and what I'm talking about is not an invitation for you to try harder. It's to die more fully to yourself and allow Jesus Christ in His life, just like a tree, to fill you with His fullness. That the character that we see in Jesus would be manifested in our life. And that would be maturity. And so if you've never trusted Christ 
we, we, we would say, listen, look to him today. If your life is a mess and you've come in and saying, well, maybe I'll just, maybe I can be religious, that'll help. It won't. It won't help. Religion won't help you. Jesus will help you. And so we commend you to Jesus. We, we beg you to look to Jesus. And what that means is this, is that you get to that end of your rope where you say, okay, God, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. And I, I see what you've done, that you sent Jesus from heaven to earth. And he died and he rose again. And I believe, and I'm asking that you, you would forgive me and be my Lord and Savior. Would you come and live within my heart and help me to become this kind of man, this kind of woman, where the fullness of Christ is literally moving through me. And if you know Christ, don't forget Colossians 2.6. It says, as you received Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. I want you to think about that for a second. As you received him, so walk in him. What that means is this, is that our attempt to grow in Christ must not be foreign to the principles of how we came to faith in Christ. You did not come to Christ by white knuckling it, and you will not grow by white knuckling it. Why don't you think about this for a second? Right? Is if you can white knuckle it without God, then what you're producing is not godliness. And therefore it will not be marked by love. We need Jesus to be on the throne of our heart. So Providence, let's not let go of the hand that brought us to the dance. It's not about us. It really is about him. And as we move forward in the future, I envision us giving ourselves to prayer. Just like Paul did. Experiencing his sin, Christ's sin-breaking power and love in our own broken lives. Allowing us to interact with one another with sincerity and transparency and honesty. Giving broken people the freedom and confidence to come here, to be loved, to find Jesus, and to be healed. I envision the day when small groups and life classes are not marked by fakeness. Where we gather together and talk about struggles, and yet the greatest struggles in our life and marriages are never mentioned for fear of what people might think and categorize us as immature. We're all immature. There's just people who are becoming mature and people who are not. And those that are, they're looking at Jesus and saying, God, here it is, fix it. Here's my heart. The second thing, though, is this, is that God doesn't just want us to fill us so that we're like the Dead Sea. It's always receiving and never giving. Is the rest of the chapter talks about this, and that's God's desire that we pour his fullness. This is the second point. God's desire that we pour his fullness out for the good of his body. He doesn't want us just to be full for, for, for fullness sake. He wants us to be ministering and loving and caring and speaking and serving out of fullness instead of emptiness so that those things can be marked by love. And what you find in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 is a lot of things there. Most of what you see there are the benefits that take place if the church will do three things. 
If you really read through that list really, really careful, those 16 verses, what you find is the church is doing three things. And if they're doing those three things, then what's happening to the church is just it's exponential in terms of the benefits of maturity and growth and love and, and, and looking like Jesus and not being tossed back and forth by the winds of false teaching. And, and all. God wants us to experience these blessings. And so what are the three things that God has called us to do after being filled with the fullness of Christ? Well, the first one is pursuing unity and love. He wants us to be pursuing unity and love. Now, I kind of hit this drum a lot last week, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it. In fact, it was the exact same passage. But in verses 1 through 6, he talks specifically about unity. And that if we're to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ, who has marked himself as being one Lord with one faith and one Father and one baptism and one, 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 that you see there in verses 4, 5, and 6, it's impossible for us to walk in a manner worthy of representing one God when we're two or three or 1,800. All of these people, we have to come together in unity. Now, unity is not sameness. Unity is harmonized diversity. You see it in athletics and you see it in music. Just two, two basic illustrations. In an orchestra, not everyone has the same instrument. We don't get 50 people up here with a flute in their hand saying, now we want you to play the exact same note, the exact same time, and this is, and this is, going, to be, this is going to be wonderful. It, it probably would be wonderful, but that's not what we do. Now what we do is we get a bunch of different instruments playing at different times, different, I'm not a musician, keys and notes and these sorts of things, right? <laughs> Timing and... And someone waves their hand and everyone agrees, you know what, I could play this when I want, but I'm not going to. I'm going to play it when that person wants. And all of a sudden what happens is the harmony is much, much fuller than sameness. The benefit is greater. And the same thing happens on an athletic field. No one takes the field with 53 punters, right? That would be 0 and 16, right? A season full of loss. No, what we do is we get different people who are gifted at different things, and they all agree upon what they're going to do, and they do it together, and those that do it best win. And this is what he's talking about here. This harmony, though, it requires humility. It requires gentleness. It requires patience and forbearance. And the only people with the resources to be humble, patient, Gentle and forbearing for very long at all are the people who've been filled with the fullness of Jesus Christ. So it starts with fullness, and with that fullness we say, I am going to work to help us to be unified. The second thing is by serving the body in love. Serving the body in love. He says in verse 7, he says that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, what this says, says is that if you know Christ, you've been gifted to serve the body. He's given you a spiritual gift, at least one. Not all of them, but at least one. And the picture that we find here in verse 8, it's so interesting to me that Paul draws upon this image of a triumphant general who's just come back from war with this wagon load of spoils of war. And not only the spoils of war, but also the captives of war. He pulls this, you you, uh, see uh, verse 8, 
from Psalm chapter 68, when he says this, he goes, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now think about this for a second. Let's just say that we were holed up in a city and their great army had come against us and they're wagging their tongue against us and they're cutting off the routes for food and water to get to us. And they're telling us that they're going to kill us. And all of a sudden, Jesus Christ rises from the throne. and He says, it's time for me to go out here and fix things. So he goes out there, right? And he's victorious. And now he comes back. And what it says here that he comes back with is not only the enemies who are now captives, those, those enemies, your enemy, his enemies, who speak accusation against you all day long. And they're wagging their tongue. Now all of a sudden their tongue can't talk because it's been silenced. And now they're chained. And they're being pulled through the city. And all the people who now once were terrified of them, they now know that they're conquering king. The conquering general is victorious and now has rendered these people powerless. These enemies powerless. And what he's on, he's on this great big carriage. I can see it like a big train. You know, he's going through and he's, on, he's up on top of the train. And on this train, there's all the spoils of war. There's gold and all kinds of stuff. And what we find here is that Jesus is not counting his money. He's not counting his gifts. No, what he's doing is he's taking them and he's throwing them out to us. He's saying, this is what I have for you. And this is what I have for you. And this is what I have for you. See, Jesus shares his victory with us. He gives us his gifts and his abilities to be able to share with the church. And you need to understand this, is that the body of Christ is in need of your giftedness. And you are in need of the giftedness of the body. You see, if we all use our giftedness to serve the church, then the church will have all it needs to do all that God wants it to do. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul's talking there about spiritual gifts. And he says, listen, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. It's in the context of him saying, you don't get all the gifts. So you can't just be your own church. You need the body of Christ. Because you and I, much like this picture of Redwoods, you and I, we can grow tall and we can grow strong and we can grow impressive and people can look at us and go, wow, look how big and strong it is. But you know, you and I are just like redwoods in that we have shallow root systems. Did you know that about these trees? They actually have very, very shallow root systems. And so what they do is this, is they're never found alone. Now what they do is that God has created them to grow up next to each other. And their shallow root system, at least it's intelligent, and it's smart enough to say, I want to wrap around your root system and your root system and your root system. And so these trees, they grow in bunches. So that when storms come, that every part can work and do its, do its part as it's being equipped to be able to hold each other up. And so God wants us serving his body in love so that it grows. And the last thing is he wants his body speaking the truth in love. You see this in verse 15. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who's the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Truth in love. You see, truth communicated within the context of the church is absolutely vital to maturity because truth is like the skeletal structure that holds the body upright. If there's no truth from God, then this is just anarchy. We do, everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And so God says, no, 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 we're going to speak truth and I'm going to give you truth to speak. What's interesting though is our culture has come to define 
loving speech as that which offends nobody. And so if your speech offends anybody, it's considered no longer loving speech. And we need to understand precisely how the Bible defines loving speech. See, the Bible tells us that loving speech is that which is good for everyone. See, as a church family, we want to continue to study the Bible and listen to what God would say to us. And the fact is, sometimes the Bible, in its truthfulness, it hurts. The Bible speaks of itself as a hammer and a sword. And a lot of people, not wanting to get touched by a hammer and sword, they try to avoid the pain by standing over the Bible, redefining the Bible, cutting things out of the Bible. And as a church family, we want to continue to sit under the Bible, allowing God to cut us, if necessary, even before He heals us. Why? Because Jesus said, You will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So what does it mean to speak the truth that may hurt in love? Well, it's a passage that really defines it well, but it's sort of been relegated by the church as the wedding text, right? This is what you hear at a wedding. Love is patient. and Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And so providence to speak the truth in love is to speak God's word patiently and with kindness, not rudeness, that it would endure and it would hope and it would believe. It's not to water down the truth. It's to speak the truth in a manner that Christ would speak it in love. So as we think about how these things are applied, and I don't have time to work through all of these, but I just want to read you a few things. When I think about body life here at Providence, when I think about us maturing as a people, how do some of these things in my own heart kind of resonate? What, what might some of these things look like? Well, five of them. I envision us fully enjoying the pleasantness of unity by yielding our preferences for the good of the body and collectively fulfilling our mission. I envision every member of Providence giving of their time, talents, and treasures, and having a ministry at Providence that corresponds with your gifts, whether that's with children or students or college or young adults or single or men or women or care ministry or hospitality ministry, evangelism ministry or missions ministry or worship ministry, prayer ministry, is that God would, God would lead you to exercise your gift for the good of this body. Within this body, there are people, though, that need special attention. And I envision a day when our children and student ministries are the first teams that are fully manned every fall with leaders and volunteers. This is the largest population of people at our church who have not trusted Jesus they're also the population who were totally dependent upon adults to love and share the truth with them. And when these pleas are put out to help with children, to teach children, 
it is easy for all of us to assume that other people are going to fill these needs. Older generations who have done it before look to the younger and say, it's your turn. Younger generations look to the older, saying, we need help. Those without children look to parents and say, well, you brought them in the world, you care for them. Parents look to those without children to say, really, I just need an hour a week, just an hour, you know? The reality is that God has entrusted all of these children to all of us. And this is a ball we cannot drop. The first ministry, fully manned, every fall. I envision life classes and small groups continuing to grow as these communities focus on discussing and applying God's word. Caring, praying, and knowing one another and reaching out in our community to make disciples. I envision the possibility of needing to have a few midweek life classes in order to meet the need for additional volunteers on Sunday with our children and students. But by and large, and first and foremost, I envision us as a church family continuing to grow in our love for God that's manifested in our love for one another. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your grace. You are um, so kind to us. Lord, that we could be able to experience the fullness of Christ and to bear fruit that would even prove ourselves to be your disciples is remarkable considering where we've been in our life. And we praise you that you are able to do far more exceedingly and abundantly above what we can ask or imagine or think. And we give you all the glory in the church, Jesus, through all generations forever and ever. And even now, Lord, as we worship you in song and as we worship you with an offering, God, we give this to you and pray, God, that you would take these offerings that we give to you and that you would use them, you would expand them for your glory, for the growth of your kingdom and for the good of people. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.